This is 1 in 44, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. 1 in 44 is a weekly show devoted to autism spectrum disorder. Good morning and welcome to 1 in 44, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, Chief Development Officer at Anderson Center for Autism. And this morning I'm speaking with Danielle Sturdivant, who I spoke to, uh, I don't know, maybe a couple weeks, couple months back. Um, we kind of found each other and I was uh, really interested in the work that you were doing within the autism community. And so I'd love to have you uh, introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your background and we'll get into uh, what you're doing and and uh, how people can get involved. Sure, thank you for that, uh, Eliza. My name is Danielle Sturdivant. I am a cl- licensed clinical social worker by training. I am also the proud mom of a 12, soon to be 13 year old son who is on the autism spectrum. Um, I've been in the social work field for over 20 years, typically working with children and families um, on the mental health side. Didn't really get into the IDD developmental side until my son was diagnosed with autism at around two and a half years old. Okay. So uh, I think that was one of the first things we had in common is that we're both social workers. Um, One of the things I think we talked about when we met was that social social work can bring you into a lot of different places in your career and your life. And uh, I think we both have an appreciation for that. So um, so I know that you, uh, when we talked, you, you spoke a lot about, um, some shifts that happened to you, you know, for you and your thinking and your, and, and how you wanted to sort of advocate, um, uh, or add, uh, advocacy to the work you were doing when it came to your son. And, and as he, uh, went through the process of being diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. Um, and I know that also we, we had a really interesting conversation about, um, the fact that he's a, he's a 12, soon to be 13 year old young man, uh, of color on the autism spectrum. And that that informed a lot of where you're putting a lot of your efforts right now, I think. Um, so take any of that that you want, but I would just love for you to talk a little bit about, um, really anything that that you want to highlight, but I was, I was specifically interested in, um, that advocacy work and, what you have found and why, why, like when you talk to other families and why you think there's uh, maybe a significant gap in, in that particular area of focus. Sure. So thank you for that. So um, I, um, like I said, my son was diagnosed at two and a half and we lived in another state. And so in that state, um, we basically had our pick of providers and different services that he would access speech, OT, PT. Um, And when I speak about specific providers, I'm talking about providers of color. So for me, Mm -hmm. it's very important for um, my son and myself to have providers that look like us, because I think that it makes our um, journey more seamless. Um, and it's easier for um, us sometimes to relate and, you know, in certain areas. So when I moved back up to this area, one of the things that I found that was sorely lacking um, was a list of providers of color who understood, you know, my son and understood myself. And so I consider autism as a culture and obviously race is a culture. And so there's this intersect of race and disability that cannot be separated. And so um, I had had the idea of living autism out loud way back in maybe 2017. Um, And the name came from the fact that my son actually lives his autism out loud. He is authentic. So for me, it's so beautiful to be able to see a child um, with no fears and no boundaries and that um, 
that they're able to be their true selves. Like for me, I have to get up, I have to put on makeup, I have to do my hair, I have to do all these things. You know, I have to do all these things to feel presentable. But for my son, what you see is what you get. And I think that's beautiful to be authentic. So that's kind of how the name came to be. Um, Mm -hmm. The other part of living autism out loud, um, when I got back to this area and I saw the shortage of providers of color, one of the things that I began to think about is the need for a BIPOC, Black and Indigenous people of color to have providers that look like them to kind of close some of these gaps. So I founded um, Living Autism Out Loud with the goal of decreasing and eventually eliminating barriers that BIPOC parents face when we're trying to access services. So for example, if I am going to a service provider for my son, I may be going for a behavior, for example. You know what I mean? And so a non-Black or non-person of color may think or may see that I'm just there for behaviors, whereas maybe a clinician of color might say, yeah, she's here for behaviors, but she also may be worried because she has a Black male son who also has a disability. And so there may be other things I need to consider when I'm offering intervention or when I'm offering um things that she needs to be mindful of or things that she can do differently. So for Mm -hmm. me, it was just really wanting to have that experience and wanting my son to have that experience of seeing people that look like him that can actually help him. So people that look like us can actually help us move forward through whatever, you know, challenges that we faced. So that's really kind of the premise of what living autism out loud does. Okay. So yeah. No, I think that that, um, thank you for, for giving us that background. Um, this is something that I've heard, uh, elsewhere. I think it's, it's gaining, um, some, some strength in messaging, I guess you would say. Um, I think that I see it also intersecting with a, with a growing, uh, and I hope it continues to grow a growing interest on the part of, uh, first responders and yeah. law enforcement in getting some training on, uh, autism spectrum disorder. I, I'm sure we've all seen various clips, films on you know, YouTube or other places, um, maybe at conferences, trying to really demonstrate the, um, the tragedies that can actually occur um, okay. when there is a lack of understanding, um, especially when it comes to an emergency situation, when there's a lot yes. going on. And then you've I got, mm-hmm. uh, right, you've got an individual who... Uh, because they're maybe not being vocal, because maybe they're they're making some sounds, maybe they're uh, not responding to directives immediately. Their processing uh, takes a little bit longer. Um, you've seen some really devastating things occur, including uh, deaths and um, restraints that that were not necessary. Um, and I think add to that what you're what you're specifically also bringing to the table is um, we know that uh, that individuals of color, especially young men um, often are um, already uh, kind of walking into situations with an expectation that 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 might be um, viewed differently or viewed as a as an aggressive kind of situation when it's really not and then add to the mix you know I'm not going to respond to you the way you're expecting me to respond to you it could get really scary um, so I, I I guess I would ask first in terms of a response to living autism out loud, um, 
have you received um, have you received responses from from families, from individuals, from other clinicians? And what has that response to your work been so far? Uh, medical professionals that I spoke mm-hmm. to, dental professionals that I've spoken to, um, other organizations where I've given presentations. And one of the things that they really appreciate is the lived experience and hearing from me as a parent, not only a provider, but as a parent who mm-hmm. can really drill down into what actually needs to happen when we are seeking services. What are some of the things you need to know? What are some of the questions that you need to ask? What are some different approaches that you can take with families of color that you may not necessarily have to take with other families? Um, Mm -hmm. While recognizing that um, children of color usually are diagnosed a lot later than their counterparts with autism. And so we might have families of color whose children are between eight and 15. Like I just talked to a parent um, yesterday and her son was not diagnosed until the age of 15 with autism. Mm. How difficult that must have been and how he had missed early intervention, you know, and all of those uh, different treatments and interventions that he could have received early on and how heartbreaking it is to be 15 and finally realize that something didn't feel okay all of those years. Do you know what I mean? So I really think about that. Um, And I know the other state that I lived in, we actually did train um, providers police officers and EMS around how to respond when you get a call from a parent. Um, You know, that's not the time to come with guns blazing and using the usual techniques that they're trained in. It's really um, an opportunity to have well-trained staff work with that individual and try to de-escalate the situation so that it does not become a problem because all of those interactions are traumatizing for people with disabilities and they're traumatizing for anybody, but particularly for people with um, disabilities, they can be traumatizing and have lifelong effects. Absolutely. Um, and, and their families and, and caregivers as well. Um, I had a, I had a conversation with a, with another guest on this podcast a while, a little while ago. Um, and we had ended up having a conversation about how great it is to see first responders and, and um, emergency personnel responding to opportunities for training. Um, and what a, what an interesting sort of cognitive thing it is to think about where you're right. So much of, of what you, what, makes a first responder excellent at what they do is their ability to think and act quickly, right? They're responders. Um, but at the same time, what we want to, what we want to bring across in training in general is they're trying to find that room for, for one possible other explanation about what might be going on. So it's like, it, I always wonder about, you know, what's really going on in their brains in that moment about, you know, how do you have one part of you that's aware enough to say what is really happening here, what could be happening here, and then also not letting go of the fact that there's an emergency of some kind that needs to be addressed. So I think, um, I, I don't think it's a, an easy thing to do, but it certainly is an important thing to keep bringing, um, bringing to the, to the light. Um, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I, uh, want to talk to you about some of the really, um, I guess, more nuts and bolts of, of uh, Living Autism Out Loud, how people access the services, um, whether your network is growing, are there a growing number of providers of color, um, which would be great to hear. So uh, we'll come back in just a minute. Uh, this is 1 in 44, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and we'll be right back. Hey, is that a faucet running? Nope. That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. It is? Yeah. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. 
the water comes straight from the forest to us. In fact... What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum! That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. How do trees clean the air? They soak up the dirty air on their leaves, branches, and trunks, which means clean air for us. Hmm, cool. I didn't know that. Yep, but the forest does more than give us clean air and water. It gives us shade for hot days, birds to listen to, and trees to climb. Wow, that's awesome. I didn't know how cool the forest could be. Hey, let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. And now, 1 in 44 continues on 100.7 WHUD. This is a weekly community affairs program presented by the Anderson Center for Autism. Welcome back to 1 in 44, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski from Anderson Center for Autism. And I'm speaking this morning with Danielle Sturdivant, um, who is the uh, mother of a 12-year-old son with autism and also a clinical social worker and the founder of Living Out a living autism out loud. Danielle, I really enjoyed our, our first part of the conversation today. So um, as I said before the break, I, I was hoping that we could get a little bit into the um, the accessibility of services through living autism out loud. Um, you've established, and, 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 and there's tons of literature and, and uh, research to back it up, that there is a dearth. There is There are not enough providers uh, in general, I think, in the country to to support individuals with autism. But when you also get uh, to the point that you're looking at and looking for providers of color so that people, individuals and families who are in need of, of services uh, and are looking for a service provider who looks like them, there's even fewer. And then also on top of that, there are um, significant delays in many areas for um, families who are looking for even diagnostic, yes. which we know uh, are the outcomes are often much better for the individual um, when the diagnosis occurs earlier um, rather than later. So you've got this whole mix of things. How do people um, get help through Living Autism Out Loud? So let me just first uh, give you um, the the makeup of Living Autism Out Loud. So Living Autism Out Loud has three phases. The first phase, which is the phase that I'm currently in, is working with providers on how to be culturally responsive. And that um, allows me the opportunity to train and present to providers information that's helpful when they're trying to engage families in services and when they're trying to keep families in services. And one of the things that I believe, especially given the shortage of providers of color up here in this uh, city, is that you don't necessarily have to look like me, but it would be great if you were trained to understand me. And so that's the premise that I work from um, when I'm talking about providers in need of training and on how to engage families. It's one thing to want to help us. It's another thing to try to help us. It's a third thing to understand us and get us in treatment so that we'll stay there and that we trust that you are doing the best thing for our children. And that's a really big one, I think, across the board. Um, the second phase is working with parents. How do you find providers? for yourself that you are comfortable with? Um, how do you build trust with providers? A lot of things, um, a lot of times providers don't understand that we, especially people of color, um, have a history of sometimes mistrust. And so we don't want to have to tell you every single thing about us 
initially. And so there's a way that you can build that uh, trust and move forward. And the other part of that, which is major for providers, is they have to understand that we have a trauma history that goes back 400 years. And so you have to understand all of that and what that walk looks like for us so that you can engage us and keep us in ser- in, in, uh, in um, services. The third um, aspect is working with universities. I have developed a curriculum for um, universities particularly special education departments where they can use parents as co-teachers. And what the parents role is really is to work with students, master's level students on how to engage families. How do you talk about the IEP process? How do you um, say to a family, you know, um, your, your child may need an evaluation. You know, how do you have those really tough conversations? And one of the things that I've heard from students consistently is that having a parent in that role has been more beneficial sometimes than the actual coursework because it's hands-on. And what I really want to push is the value of lived experience. Now, I went to Columbia, I read a lot of books, I've done a lot of work, a lot of social work, but I can tell you that my lived experience is what really, really makes me um, better at what I do. Yeah. Yeah. So my website is www.livingautismoutloud.org. And that's all one word. Okay. Livingautismoutloud.org for more more information about this and about Danielle and how you can get involved. Um, So let me just clarify the three phases you just went through. They all sound great. Um, are they all up and running at this point or are you in phase one where you're working with area providers first? I am actually working across phases. So okay. if a parent calls me and needs assistance, then I'd be more than happy to reach out and try to help that parent. If a provider okay. calls and needs training, I'd be happy to do that. And right. so I ne- neglected to mention, but I do have several trainings on my website. I have yes. one called Parenting a Child of Color on the Autism Spectrum. Mm-hmm. And that one really is for parents who um, maybe have just gotten the diagnosis. And I kind of take you through lived experience of having to explain that to my family. You know, I have this kid with autism and what that means and the responses that I got and how that works. The second big one is called navigating the complex world of autism spectrum disorder. And that one talks about when I had to reach out to providers and actually try to get services. Some of the conversations I've had to have with my son's pediatrician, dentist, educators, you know, about who he is and what autism means to our family. The third one is called the hidden barriers to accessing services. Mm -hmm. So after I did phase one and phase two, I found out that there are some hidden barriers out there (laughs) that I really had to navigate my way around. And I talk about how you work through those barriers to still get to the outcome that you want, which is obviously services for your loved one. And so those are my top three that I um, work on consistently, doing a lot of uh, presentations and public speaking around those three topics. Great. And I, and again, let's just say the website, it's living autism out loud, all one word.org. I want to circle back to just one thing that you, you pointed out. We have a couple more minutes and I just think it's, it's really, it really got me thinking Um, the piece about trust and finding providers and trusting them. And, and I think you're right. I think that, that we have an expectation or there seems to be an expectation that I believe I have just sort of accepted, but, but um, you know, maybe there are some some steps we can all take as a as a as a society together to to shift it a little bit. Where even though you know parents are the experts on their own children, we're the ones who know our children since you know before they're born. We we yeah. 
we're the first one who lays eyes on them. We're the first one who cares for them. Um, nobody is getting a diagnosis at, at age one day, uh, right. certainly not when it comes to autism. And, and, and yet when a time, whether you're going for your initial pediatrician's visit or you're going for a specific reason, because you have a concern, you know, there's a lot of talk out there about how well, you know, parents are, are going to be the first ones who notice that something might seem a little different, a little off, maybe something that they want to follow up on. And yet what happens when you walk into any office? You're given a stack of papers, or or maybe now it's online, but still the questions are can be you know incredibly overwhelming. I even think about you know the the admissions uh, paperwork that you know at a place like Anderson and many other uh, organizations that are designed with all the best intentions. It's all about trying to take the expertise that's been collected in, in, in a place, whether it's medical or, or um, behavioral or anything else mm-hmm. and help people. But you're starting a relationship with a questionnaire. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that, uh, I think that the only other time that I've heard of a model that's different are in, you know, when I've talked to people who are from incredibly small towns mm-hmm. um, where kind of that, that sense that everybody that knows everybody. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to sit there and do the questionnaire because either that person already knows a lot about your family and your family history, or as you, I, this is my long winded way of getting to your point, the trust is already there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I just wanted to underscore that because that really kind of hit home for me that I think certainly um with respect to people of color and the and the you know centuries long history of challenges, I don't know the right word is, but challenges with trust and developing those relationships with somebody mm-hmm. who you don't already you know know or isn't a, a family connection, um, but compounded by the urgency of needing to help your child right. and wanting to help your child. Um, so I think that that's uh, that's really an, a hugely important part of what you're talking about doing is um, maybe helping both providers and families come to a different place when it, when Absolutely. it's, how do you form that relationship? It's like a therapeutic relationship. You, yes, definitely. you don't walk into a therapist's office and immediately start spilling everything that, that you're, you know, you're, you're feeling. It's usually the development of a relationship. Why isn't medical the same? Right. And that's very true. And the other way I like to think of it, Eliza, is I like to think of it as, you know, back when we were in Columbia, we were really taught about cultural competence and cultural yeah. competence says, I know who you are and, you know, I know who you are. Cultural humility, on the other hand, says, tell me who you are and I'm open to learning. And I think that if we could move toward cultural humility and having the opportunity to invite parents as partners and truly partnering with parents and allowing parents the opportunity to be the expert on their children, then I think the outcomes will be better for um, just all, all, all the way around. And I know it's hard for some of us professionals to give up our power, but just think about the beauty of shared power. Yeah. Like my one job is to know my son inside and out. Yeah. And I can tell you every single thing, you know, about him. Mm -hmm. And if imagine like even, um, and, you know, sometimes with our kids with disabilities or our our adult children, sometimes they have reactions that can be um, aggressive. Wouldn't you like to know that as as a professional up front? Like if you try to stick him with a needle, he's probably going to run out of the room or have this reaction. Who would know that better than his parent or her parent or the parent? Mm -hmm. So when we discount parents and we want them to sit and just listen to us and we don't allow them the opportunity to share in whatever way they find meaningful, then we really, really miss a big chunk of treatment and we're not treating the whole person. Right. We're just treating what the, the parts that we think we're good at. And we really have to get back to treating the whole person. And yeah. part of that whole person would be the, the family. 
And sometimes it's not the mother or the father. Sometimes it's the uncle, the auntie, the grandma, grandpa. Or the brother or the sister. Sometimes it's siblings. That you can talk to. And in families of color, at least in mine anyway, my aunts and uncles are like my parents. They have the same authority. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you could get basically probably the same information from them as you could from my parents. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know that about a culture... And if you just think, you know, the mom or the dad to the head, then you miss the whole generational piece that we as people of color have always had. We've mm-hmm. always been caretakers. Look back at slavery. I mean, uh, honestly, look back. We've always been caretakers. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's easier for us to just take care of our own and not have to bother with answering a million questions or the misunderstandings or the labels that our kids sometimes get that are sometimes mislabeled. Do you know what I mean? And so it's just so many different things. I do. I do. I love what you said about cultural humility. I think that would be a wonderful goal. And I think we have to, we have to end, we're out of time, but I I really appreciate everything that you shared today and what you're trying to do, what you are doing. It's not, you're not trying, you're doing it. And um, I really wish you the best with, as you continue to grow this and and uh, remind people who are interested in learning more about the work that Danielle is doing in this space. It's uh, go to livingautismoutloud.org and there's training videos. There's more information about Danielle herself, uh, ways to get in touch. And um, obviously I would assume you'll be updating things as you get, you know, even more information out there, but Danielle Sturdivant, um, Living Autism Out Loud. Thank you so much for sharing your background, your thoughts, your expertise, and and your work. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that you're going to continue to make a really positive impact in the lives of many. Thank you so much for having me. What a great honor. Thank you. Oh, so you're much. very welcome. This is One in 44, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski. And remember, Anderson cares. You've been listening to One in 44, a weekly presentation of the Anderson Center for Autism. Join us for another edition of the show at this time next weekend.